privilege of remarkable delight, isn't it, that we've been able to assemble with the blessing of God on this occasion and for the purpose of directing our heartfelt praise and adoration and worship unto the only and true God of heaven. Isn't it true, the psalmist exclaimed in Psalm 100, and rather Psalm 89, verse 52, that blessed be the name of the Lord forevermore and evermore. Surely tonight, as we give thought for the next few moments, we have been prepared to give thought to this Word of God by virtue of our prayers, our singing, and now we're going to study out of the Old Testament primarily tonight. But as we do that, it'll be lessons with tremendous principles for you and, yea, for myself even today. You've already noticed in the title that we're going to cast a spotlight on the book of Joel. If you'd be turning to that Old Testament book, it's the second of the Minor Prophets. And these opening comments will provide the foundation or the groundwork from which we'll move into a springboard of the lesson. It probably is so that of all the 66 books of the Bible, the Minor Prophets and perhaps even the Major Prophets as well of the Old Testament are those about which we know the least. We know a great deal about many of the first books of the Old Testament, but probably, at least for most people, the degree of knowledge of those books from Isaiah to Malachi probably is a bit on the lesser side compared to the others. But yet, isn't it fascinating that the Holy Spirit saw fit to preserve those books, just like He did the first books in the Old Testament? There are great lessons in those books. You'll notice on that slide in Luke 24, verse 44, the Son of God Himself declared... All that is written in the prophets and the psalms and the writings concerning me hath fulfillment. Those prophets often then spoke about principles and matters that not only pointed directly to Christ, but they pointed directly to the reality of the church. And so you and I today are the blessed beneficiaries of those truths. You'll notice one other time in Revelation 19 verse 10, near the end of the great book of Revelation, there we read that the spirit of the prophets is the testimony of Jesus. In other words, those things declared by the Master Himself were in fact nothing less than the great spirit of those prophets. I'd go so far as to say that some of the noblest, some of the most fantastic servants of God who have ever lived are the prophets of the Old Testament. Now tonight, we'll certainly not get through the book of Joel if we spend too long prefacing all these remarks. But when you give thought to what those men like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and those men like Joel, what they endured and yet remain faithful, to some extent it might put some of us to shame. Would I be faithful if I had to endure what they did? Well, tonight let's study Joel. The book of Joel, as you'll notice as we come to the bottom of that slide, let's also appreciate this truth. Of all those 17 Old Testament prophetical books, five of them are called major prophets and the other 12 are minor prophets. Let's not think the word minor means they're less inspired. All the word minor means is those books are shorter than the major ones. That's all. They are every bit as inspired, every bit as essential and needful. It is with that in mind, the book of Joel is a rather brief book. It only has three chapters, a sum total of only 73 verses. Likely the entire book could be read in a few moments. And yet tonight we're going to cast a bit of a spotlight upon it in the sense that we're going to dig somewhat slowly through the three chapters 
pulling out the major matters along the way and using them to present memorable lessons for you and me. And so as we begin, you probably noticed something about the title. I entitled the lesson, Joel, Locusts and Pentecost. What an interesting combination, and yet both of them are woven together to the extent that they occupy a vital role in the presentation of this little Old Testament minor prophet. With that in mind, let's discuss locusts first. And I did say locusts. As you have read the book of Joel, likely it has come before all of us to give thought to this prophet, in fact, makes frequent mention of locusts. Now, you and I think grasshoppers and locusts, and we understand what kind of an animal that is. And yet, what role did they play in the presentation of truth? Let's begin like this. The book of Joel in the opening chapter begins instantly with a reminder of the dire circumstances surrounding God's people at that time. The fact of the matter is this. There had been a devastating plague of locusts that had overran the region of Palestine. Now, that wasn't the first time that it had happened. In that part of the world, this sort of thing happens every few decades. This, this rather tremendous, this intense, this severe plague of locusts. Well, you'll notice at the top, verses 1, 2, and 3, in fact, make reference to this. The prophet Joel makes mention to them, don't you realize that these locusts, together with the palmer worm, together with the grasshopper, all of these have come and left in their wake were circumstances that we're about to see by way of picture. Thankfully for the matters of this lesson, the National Geographic magazine it has chronicled on several occasions these devastating locust plagues in that part of the world. And in the 1915 issue of National Geographic, pictures were put in place, and I have taken the liberty of making use of some of those pictures. For instance, consider this one. Here is a tree in that part of the world in Palestine, but it is prior to the plague of locusts. Here is the same tree. Afterward, you can immediately tell when a plague of locusts of this enormity and this severity arrives, they leave nothing behind them. In fact, the records went on to say in that magazine that the skies would in fact become darkened as that sudden wave of locusts would arrive. They were in such great numbers that in fact it made things darker than it otherwise would have been. Here's another picture. At the top left is a picture again prior to the coming of the locust, and quite frankly, that is the Garden of Gethsemane. That place you and I give thought to in the heart of the New Testament where the Mount of Olives was. And look at how it appears in the bottom right. I wasn't able to enlarge it anymore, which is why it's no bigger than it is, but if you're close enough, you can tell there is nothing left in the bottom. The flowers are gone, the trees are rubbed bare. When these locusts came through, they literally would leave nothing behind. All the trees were eaten completely, the leaves thereof, the crops, everything was destroyed. With those pictures, let's go back to the previous slide then. Because the opening chapter of Joel highlights the fact the people were in severe circumstances. The crops had wasted. The locusts had eaten them all. 
Not only that, things were so severe that the offerings to God had to be disbanded. Remember, some of the offerings, in fact, had to do with you bring the first fruits. Well, the locust had eaten it all. They didn't have anything to take to the offerings. Not only that, what about the pasture land? Joel 1 verse number 18 reads it like this. How do the beasts groan? The herds of cattle are perplexed because they have no pasture. Yea, the flocks of sheep are made desolate. Even the cattle had nothing to eat. The locusts had eaten all the grass. They had eaten all of the pasture land. And therefore, even the animals, some of them had even begun to die by this point. Needless to say, things were very, very dire. Look at this with me. You'll notice in verse number 9, the meat offering and the drink offering is cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests, the Lord's ministers, mourn. People no longer had things. Remember, the grapevines had been eaten. There was nothing left to even make that particular drink offering to God. Suffice it to say, with things this severe... The prophet Joel came on the scene and delivered a message to the people of God. In this little book is that message, hearkening them to realize the nature of the circumstances in which they were and the one to whom they could turn in the midst of this circumstance. Lesson number one is this. From time to time we'll pause and reflect on a lesson taken from Joel, but one that will apply to you and me as well. Lesson number one, turn to God. It's easy enough to do that when times are good. And when you're overloaded with lavish blessings and benefits, He has afforded you. But when circumstances are challenging and when matters are trying like they were then, who were the people of Judah to turn to? Remember, the prophet Joel brought the message of God to the southern kingdom of Judah. Who do they turn to? Let's read verse number 14 of chapter 1. Sanctify ye fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord and cry unto the Lord. The first order of business that Joel said, it's time for the leaders, the people of Israel who are leading, it's time for all of you to get together at the, temp at the temple and cry to God. Make lamentation to Him. Confess error and fault to Him and beseech His gracious goodness again. May you and I appreciate that it would seem that there's a basic matter in the psyche of many people that's at least aware of that truth. Do you remember when 9-11 happened back in 2001? Not many days thereafter, we saw our congressmen gathering on the White House steps, locking arms and praying. They understood they needed a power higher than them. Not only that, many people across this land, at least for a few weeks thereafter, had some interest in church services in the Bible. My suspicion is the Bible was read more over that period of a month or so than probably it has been since. But the fact is, Joel said it's time to turn back to God, call an assembly. May you and I see in this a constancy and a permanence. And aren't you thankful... You and I don't neglect God any time. We're here whether times are good or whether they're bad. We're here worshiping Him because we understand that He is reverenced and to be worshipped. 
the people of Joel's day needed this lesson as we're about to see in a moment because they had rebelled against God and they weren't serving Him very well. Aren't you thankful to be anchored in life in a way to where even in the midst of life's storms, whatever they are and whenever they come, you and I are anchored in a way that will not be blown about, anchored in a way to where we shall not in fact be drawn asunder, but rather we will be faithful unto death. This turning to God, you'll notice, is something that is highlighted a number of times in many ways in this book. Let's now go past those same pictures we looked at before and notice a number of the times in which this plea is presented to you and me. May we begin in Lamentations 3, verses 40 and 41. Now there was the prophet Jeremiah, so a different spokesman than Joel, and yet he said, Let us lift up our hearts unto God in heaven with our hands. Searching for God. In Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, Aren't you and I commanded, and very directly so? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. To join that refrain, couldn't we add Zechariah 1 verse 3? So there's another Old Testament prophet, and Zechariah almost immediately with God speaking through him and said, Turn to me. One more time in Zechariah's day, the people had turned somewhere else. They needed to turn back to God. But that isn't, of course, found only in the Old Testament. In John chapter 6 verse 68, some of the most stirring words Peter ever spoke. Didn't Peter say this? You might remember a powerful lesson had just been preached by Jesus, and it was the case that some of the people had left. They had turned and walked no more with Him. And Jesus said, Will you also go away? And Peter responded like this, Lord, to whom shall we go? Peter recognized there was no one else. There was no other power and source like unto the Master. In 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, Aren't you and I taught, examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith? Perhaps one final statement in Acts 26, 18. As Paul stood with such dramatic character before the authorities of his day, there he reminded us to ever be present and turn unto God. With that opening lesson then of this little book of Joel put before us, isn't it remarkable how timely... Let's go on and look at a second lesson. Chapter number 2 comes before us as follows, and almost instantly we are reminded about a theme that runs through many of these minor prophets. It's the so-called Day of the Lord. Chapter 1, in fact, had made mention of it. Could I direct your attention to verse 15 of Joel chapter 1? Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. And as a destruction from the Almighty shall it come. One of the finest studies, it seems to me, in regard to this day of the Lord is to take at face value these features that are presented. You and I live in a day today when there are many who, in fact, by way of words, seemingly long for the day of the Lord. They have the general feeling it's going to be a day of goodness and gladness and happiness but yet almost exclusively in the Old Testament. 
when the phrase, the day of the Lord, is mentioned, it is referred to as a day of gloominess, a day of darkness, a day of judgment from God upon those who have not been faithful to Him. And so it was here. In verse 1 of chapter number 2, Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. It's a day that's going to bring some trembling. It won't be happy for everybody. Now, just as surely as that was true in Joel's day, you and I know that the New Testament looks forward to a grander day of the Lord, wherein it shall be the Lord's second coming, and the day of judgment will immediately follow. But might you and I learn a valiant principle. Just as surely as it was a day of darkness and gloominess for many then, it shall be again, according to Revelation chapters 5 and 6. Let's add to that the following. Joel uses in a dramatic way these locusts. For instance, look at verse 3 of Joel chapter 2. A fire devoureth before them. That word them refers to the locusts. And behind them a flame burneth. The land is as the garden of Eden before them. Can you imagine like that tree we saw a picture of a moment ago? Fully in leaf and fully presenting the nature of its fruit. And that's before the locusts come. But yet after they've come, look at how it's described. Although it's like Eden before them. After them it says it's like a desolate wilderness. Doesn't that highlight? Can you imagine the terror that would fill your heart? If you were a farmer and you could see in the distance this plague of locusts coming, you know already by the end of the day, every bit of my crop's going to be gone. It'd be enough to startle you. It'd be enough to shake you to your very core. For now, you know, how am I going to care for myself and my family? You know there's not a thing you can do about those locusts. Let's add to that the following. In Joel 2, verse number 10, The earth shall quake before them. The heavens shall tremble, the sun and the moon shall be dark, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. The greatness of these locusts and what they would bring is they're described in a figurative fashion to where even the earth will proverbially shake because of them. Nobody is going to be exempt from them. Not only that, it says in verse number 11, and the Lord shall utter His voice before His army. It might well be that is the most startling feature so far. These locusts are called the army of God. They're called His army. And He's bringing them against a people who themselves had become rebellious and disobedient. A people who though they wore the name of God, they weren't living like it. They had directed their attention elsewhere and this plague of locusts was a judgment from the God of heaven to wake them up, to cause them to realize that they needed to turn back unto God. No wonder in light of that. Verse number 13, and this surely is one of the key verses in the whole book. Therefore also now, begin reading in verse 12, saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart, and not your garments. Almost immediately we learned that the people of Israel were really good at giving the impression of repentance. 
Oh, they'd put sackcloth on and they'd put ashes on their head and they'd go around in public as if others could say, look at how sorrowful he is and look at how pious and godly and look at how he's repented. But he really didn't mean it in his heart. God said repentance has got to start from the heart and come out from there. Rend your heart and not your garments. You see, it's not repentance if I'm just putting on a show for everybody. Repentance has got to start from the inside. A heartfelt desire to be first and foremost right with the God who is my maker and the one who will be my judge. To merely give a show of repentance so others can shed tears with me, that isn't repentance. Isn't it true? It's entirely possible to shed tears and come forward. But if I really don't mean it in my heart, I may go right back tomorrow to doing what I was doing yesterday. Repentance must be deeper than that. Rend your heart, Israel, and not merely your garments. For that reason, look at some of these lessons. Isn't repentance a subject that's often put before us in the Word of God, reminding us of what it really is? Being sorrowful is not repentance. It's a part of it, but by itself that isn't repentance. I can be sorry I got caught. That doesn't mean I've repented. Repentance is a change of heart that evidences itself as a change of behavior. A change in heart that shows itself by a change in action. No wonder Joel said, rend your heart and not your garments. The people of ancient Israel were masters at parading down Main Street, giving the impression they'd repented when really they hadn't. Today, you and I can be guilty of that too. Didn't Jesus put it like this in Matthew 21? He gave a dramatic and rather inspired definition of repentance. There was a man that had two sons and he told the boys, Go today and work in my vineyard. And one of them said, I will not. But he repented and went. That defines what repentance is. The boy had a change of heart that resulted in the fact that he went. He changed his heart and that produced a change in his action. That's what repentance is and has always been, isn't it? I mentioned a moment ago about godly sorrow, and certainly that's an important point to know. But doesn't 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 put it like this? Godly sorrow worketh repentance unto salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Merely to be sorrowful so that others can at least think that I've repented, that still works death. It's godly sorrow that works repentance to salvation. But that sorrow notice works or it leads to repentance. It's not the same thing as repentance. When you and I then give thought to that matter, let's close the slide with some of those additional passages. Wasn't repentance a vital matter in the preaching of John the Baptist? To your attention, I would call Matthew 3 verse 8. There were loads of people that came to the Jordan River to be baptized of Him, but John was quick to tell them, bring forth fruits, meat for repentance. You see, he wasn't willing to just dunk them in water. They needed first to repent. No wonder you and I place such an emphasis because the Bible does. We don't want to just put someone beneath water because repentance has to come first. Didn't Peter on Pentecost say, repent and be baptized? The repentance came first. 
when you and I give thought to that, you'll notice the Bible lists repentance to an exceedingly high place, doesn't it? And you and I note this, we can't be saved without it. Jesus, in fact, twice in Luke 13, 3 and 5 said, Nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Perhaps one final thought. That text in Luke 13, 3, as well as that passage in Acts 2, 38, is only elaborated on in the next chapter, Acts 3, 19, where one more time Peter admonished even those gathered there to make sure to realize the need to repent. As we close that slide and begin to consider the next one, you'll notice that this chapter in Joel 2 proceeds onward, not only insisting that they bring forth fruits, or that is to say, rend their heart. Look at the great blessing that's reserved if they did. I'll begin reading in verse number 15. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly. Gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders. Gather the children and those that suck the breasts. Let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. Let the priest, the minister of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord, to give not thine heritage to reproach that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, Where is their God? You noticed in that passage, Joel insists to the people, Please wake up. Gather the congregation, call a solemn assembly, and beseech God with all your heart. The reason I read that, look at verse number 18. It begins with the word then. In other words, if you'll do this, then will the Lord be jealous for His land and He'll pity His people. Things are going to get better if you'll turn to God. Things are going to look up and improve because God will be with you then. Verse 19 reads, Yea, the Lord will answer and say unto His people, Behold, I will send you corn and wine and oil, and ye shall be satisfied. You know all that that those locusts have just eaten? If you'll turn to God and place your trust in Him, what about the next growing season? God will take care of you. Could I draw your attention to verse 25? It is one of the most dramatic statements in the whole book. I will restore, God said, to you the years that the locust has eaten. Don't you love that sense? And may I say that things in your life or mine could be like that. If I've been bereft of blessings because I've walked away from God, the New Testament is filled with principles that in essence say this, if you'll come to me, I'm going to restore some of the tragedy you've lost. And I'll look upon you with favor in regard to that which you have so foolishly turned your attention to. Maybe in light of those things, verse 21 says, Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord will do great things. But notice all this depends on their repentance and turning to God. Let's jump to the bottom of that and note this lesson. Lesson number three. You'll notice I've entitled it, The Pouring Out of the Spirit. I entitled the lesson, Locusts and Pentecost. And I did that for this reason. Lesson number three. Without a doubt, the thing for which the book of Joel is most known 
is the fact that contained in his little book is a prophecy in which he looked down the stream of time over 800 years and he predicted in great detail what you and I call the day of Pentecost, the day the church began, the day when the Lord Jesus Christ founded that great kingdom of which you and I are still a part, the church of our Lord. Joel prophesied about it. I'd like to read verses 28 to 32 of Joel chapter 2, and then we'll make remarks from the New Testament as to how we know what this means. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, and also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my Spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance as the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Picture the scene with me. Nine o'clock in the morning on that day, we call the day of Pentecost, the apostles were gathered in the upper room just as the Lord had told them, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them, baptizing them, and they start speaking in in tongues that they had never learned. You and I call that speaking in tongues. We read about that dramatically in Acts 2 verses 1 to 4. But this interesting thing... Seventeen different nationalities of people were assembled in Jerusalem at that time because it was the Feast of Pentecost and Jews from all over had come to celebrate it and to observe it. But beginning in verse number 14, the following assertions are made. Remember, as those apostles were speaking in languages that they'd never learned, others in that community who were witnessing said, "'Those men are full of new wine. They're drunken.'" Peter stood up and boldly said, These men are not drunken as you suppose, but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And then he quotes verbatim the text you and I just read. Joel prophesied directly about the baptism of the Holy Spirit on those apostles on the day of Pentecost and the reality of what would blossom that day, the blessed church of our Lord No wonder Joel is called the prophet of Pentecost, and that's the one thing, I guess, that you and I can most readily remember about him. Not only was the locusts, but he's the prophet of Pentecost. Let's develop that point like this. You'll notice not only did Joel specify the nature of that event on Pentecost, but if you noticed with care, Joel said even more than that. Let me at least read a part of it again. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. He did not say only the Jews. He said all flesh. And so it was that the Jews were assembled in Jerusalem on the Pentecost. What about the Gentiles? Well, you and I need not fear. Joel's prophecy was about all flesh. It's just that you'll notice the time frame was this. Joel didn't say it would happen the same day. It says, it shall come to pass afterward. And so it was. When we arrive at Acts chapter 10, at the household of Cornelius, 
in verses 44 to 48, they too were baptized in the Holy Spirit. They too began to speak in languages they'd never learned. And God poured out His Spirit on the Gentiles, making it all flesh. The Jews in Acts chapter 2, the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, both of them was afterward in the last days. And so it was that Joel's prophecy made its fulfillment. What a dramatic reality. Joel, the prophet of Pentecost. Let's close that slide like this. Jesus had, of course, said in Mark 16, verses 15 and 16, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Not just the Jews, but every creature, the Lord said. And so when that event concerning Cornelius and his household occurred in Acts chapter 10, in the next chapter, Peter himself said, I'm going to turn to the Gentiles because you Jews are rejecting God. And so he did. And he carried that message of truth, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, not merely to the Jews only, but yea, also to the Gentiles as well. Joel, the prophet of Pentecost. May I say that chapter number 3 in the book of Joel has another landmark case within it. And so, for the last part of the lesson tonight, why don't we give some thought to the closing chapter of Joel. So far, we've looked at chapter 1 and the locusts. Chapter 2, God's promises and His insistence that they rend their heart and not their garment. And now, finally, this matter of Pentecost and the beautiful matter surrounding it. Chapter 3, though, is yet to come. I've entitled this slide, Decision. Could I direct your attention to verse 14? Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The opening part of this chapter, God pronounces judgment on many, particularly on those that were the enemies of His people. God knew that as these would turn back to Him, that they, of course, were His own, and those who would be His enemies. God pronounced judgment upon them, and it is a very difficult reading in some sense to notice what would befall them. But to that, might I add this. In verse number 8, God even said something about His own people. His own Jews, if they didn't turn back to Him, and if they didn't serve Him with all their heart, they too would be the subject of judgment. There's a valiant lesson in that for all of us, isn't there? It isn't enough just to wear the name Christian. Am I really living that way? Am I committed unto the Lord Jesus Christ? Wearing that name alone won't mean much on the day of judgment. In fact, in 1 Peter 4, those who wore it and then made disgrace upon it, they're going to receive sorer judgment. Verse 17 and 18 of that chapter tells us. But notice God's people here, if they were to turn to Him and experience the blessings that He had in store for them, doesn't it highlight that text I just read in verse 14? Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. It would be fair to say every accountable being today is still standing in the valley of decision. Every one of us. God is fighting for us. The devil's fighting against us. And you and I have the luxury of casting the tie vote. Multitudes in the valley of decision. Where are you standing tonight? What about me? Are you standing on the Lord's side? How often in the Bible, even in the days of Moses onward, did God hearken, who's on the Lord's side, Exodus 33? 
Thankfully, there were a large number that walked over and stood on the Lord's side, but remember all the ones that didn't? God gave decree, go slay the ones that didn't. Now, you and I know today that God will permit us to live, and we shall be able to enjoy the blessings and goodness of this earth, but there's coming a day, that day of judgment when there will be no tomorrow. If we're not on the Lord's side then, it'll be too late to make any decision. We've already made it. Joel pleaded with the people, Don't you realize you're in the valley of decision? Fall on the Lord's side. I use that to close it like this. In the very next verse, the sadness goes on. The sun and the moon shall be darkened. The stars shall withdraw their shining. The Lord shall roar out of Zion. To those that are God's enemies, notice what's going to happen if they stayed in that valley of decision and didn't come to the Lord's side. It was not going to be a pretty ending. Tonight, as we've studied these lessons, hadn't the book of Joel been a scintillating thing, a, a penetrating series? Although the book's brief, there's so much packed within it. As you close that tonight, why don't we then conclude it like this? A final statement. The book of Joel, I found it thrilling in my attempt to prepare the lesson. I hope you found it useful. I hope we've each been motivated to note these very interesting little lessons. To summarize, they've been like this. First, turn to God, even in the midst of catastrophe. Secondly, whenever we repent, may we always ensure it's genuine repentance. Not just to show somebody else, for that isn't by repentance by itself. Thirdly, to highlight the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. What a dramatic thing that God prophesied so many years before about the reality of those unforgettable events on the day of Pentecost, events of which you and I are still the beneficiaries. And finally, the valley of decision. Joel 3 verse 14, multitudes in that valley... Tonight, what about you? Are you ready to make a decision for the Lord? If your life isn't as it ought to be, realize the gospel invitation demands this. You must believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Son of God, John 8, 24. You must repent of your sins as we've described tonight, Luke 13, 3. You must confess the name of Jesus as the Son of God, Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. And you must be baptized because there's where you contact the blood of Christ and there's where you're saved. You aren't saved prior to baptism, 1 Peter 3.21. If you have, though, taken care of those needs and you've begun the walk with Christ, but maybe like ancient Israel, though you walk faithfully a while, the temptations of the world became sufficiently strong that you chose to walk away Notice, they had to repent genuinely, and so too do you need to do that and make confession unto God. He'll be glad to welcome you back home, just like the prodigal son of Luke 15. As we close our lesson on Joel tonight, may we each be motivated, just as that little prophet was, that we too would be faithful in our service. If we could be of any help to anyone tonight in a public way, we'd be delighted to do that and to do it at once while together we stand and while we sing.